You are listening to a Hillbilly Horror Stories classic episode. It's about to be a fun ride. Follow along, watch as we slide. Paranormal just hit the lights. Goosebumps all through the night. Mixing just a little bit of twain. That girl sure can't do a thing. Together, hillbillies go insane. Laugh so hard it'll hurt your brain. Podcast you won't ever change. These two here, they got the recipe. Sat on back and listen in to some of our darkest mysteries, eh? Welcome to Hillbilly Horror Stories. And now here's your host. Jerry and Tracy Polly and their dog Ninja. Do you get mad when listening to true crime? Well, so do I. If you want a weekly true crime podcast that says what you're thinking, then grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is Cambo from True Crime Island, another true crime podcast, and maintain the rage with me. Visit TrueCrimeIsland.com where you can download or stream each episode, plus there's links to iTunes and social media. Don't forget to delete your browser history. This is True Crime Island. everybody and welcome to episode 71 of hillbilly horror stories i am jerry and i'm joined by tracy hey guys uh getting ready for christmas around here this is our last episode before uh the christmas night episode and we got a few little tricks in our bag for for that special show i have a bag yeah it's santa's bag Ooh wee. <laughs> yeah gotta be excited about santa's sack hey you know i am so Wanted to touch on a couple things real quick. Obviously, we want to thank all of our military from all over the world, no matter what country you're serving, and all of our uh, first responders out there and civil servants. Thank you so much for everything you do. God bless you guys. I know it's hard being away from your families, but no, we are always thinking about you all. Next week's show, we're probably going to feature, uh, I know Andrea um, is supposed to come back on. You guys love it when she comes on and tells the stories. Mm-hmm. And she's supposed to come on. She's got something that is going to knock your socks off. Good. So we're trying to put together uh, some times this week. And then we also have a surprise from, um, well, I'm not going to tell you what that one is. You just have to be surprised as part of your Christmas gift. So that one you'll have to wait on. But I can tell you there is another pretty well-known podcaster that is going to start doing a uh, a small segment occasionally with us. Oh, yeah. About true crime facts. And uh, I'll just leave as to who this mystery person is until uh, next week so it can be your little Christmas surprise. But it's going to be fun. I've been, uh, this has been in the works for a couple of weeks. I wonder who it is. You probably really don't know who it is. <laughs> but um, I like surprises. Yeah, I do too. So yeah, I think it's uh, it's going to be a, a very cool Christmas episode, and we're going to do some Christmas stories, some um, uh, I guess you could say horror Christmas stories. So we'll see how that works. But tonight is tonight, and what we've got is a couple of stories for you. Uh, both of these stories are more creepy, true crime than paranormal. 
but, but I think you're going to like both of them. And uh, the first story we're going to do, I'm going to thank Justin Rimmel from Mysterious Circumstances, one of our Bomb Pod brothers. He actually uh, gave me the idea for this story. He thought it would fit really well. And then when I read up on it, it did really fit well. Uh, we could go ahead and announce that on April 14th, if you're in the Cincinnati, Ohio area, myself and Tracy are going to join Justin from Mysterious Circumstances and uh, the guys, uh, uh, Nick and Rob from Ohio, for a live show up there. We still haven't nailed down the actual uh, place yet, the venue for this, but we just know it's going to be all three of us and it's going to be on a Saturday night on April 14th and that should be a fun time. So if you're in the area, that'd be a good time to catch up. Yeah. Uh, at the end of the show tonight, we've got two really good stories for you. And then at the end of the show, we have got an interview with our, our buddy Lee Sowell from where Tracy don't break the oath. They, um, uh, Andy couldn't join us, but Lee, uh, came on to talk about how they fixed all their audio and now they're, they're, uh, some special guests and stuff they have on, but mainly he came on because he's going to tell us a couple of scary stories, good. one of which is in our neck of the woods and I didn't know anything about it. So it's pretty cool. So that's what we got going uh, for you tonight. So let's jump right in here and let's start trying to scare you a little bit. Uh, this first story. All right. This first story takes place February 7th, 1981. Picture this. You got a 29-year-old African-American man by the name of Leroy Carter Jr. He's walking through the Golden Gate Park in San Francisco. He's looking for a place to sleep. He finds what he thinks is the perfect place to sleep in a nice little secluded spot next to Alvord Lake. Unfortunately for Mr. Carter, he was not going to wake up from this sleep. You mean like Rip Van Winkle? Well, no, I don't think we mean like him because he actually woke up from his sleep. It just took like a long time. Oh. This guy, unfortunately, was not going to wake up. Oh. He was brutally murdered. Oh, no. Uh, the papers didn't even really say much about it uh, as far as the murder goes. It was just more like kind of a small blurb, which unfortunately um, kind of happens with the homeless people a lot of times. You know, that's so sad. I mean, their life is already sad enough, but they can't even be acknowledged in a proper way. I mean, most of the stories that they had, like I said, was just basically, you know, was based on the fact that a homeless man was found dead in the park. What made this case so different was how Carter was actually found. He had been found decapitated and the evidence actually pointed to voodoo. Oh my gosh. So let's learn a little bit about the area. Okay. Um, because this, this area is actually pretty rich in history. Even though you might not know it right off the bat, when I start talking about mm -hmm. some of the stuff, you'll, you'll know what I'm talking about. Alvord Lake actually sits at the edge of Golden State Park, which is across from the iconic Haight-Ashbury District. Okay. And some people pronounce it Haight, some people pronounce it Haight, but it's H-E-A-I-G-H-T. Oh, okay. So, but most people say Haight, so Haight-Ashbury District. Now, this is actually the same area where all the hippies congregated like in the 60s and the 70s to peace love and everybody you know everybody talked about going to san francisco yeah. and this is where everything happened at kind of like you know woodstock's where all the music happened oh at. dang well, so it's a cool place to yeah, go yeah this was a cool place and and uh it basically the high streets was just full of, of teenagers and and uh young people just trying to find their purpose and in life yeah yeah i mean that pretty much was it and that's where this thing first came to prominence. Now, in the 70s came, drugs became uh, a lot more prominent there, and the, the peace and love segment kind of dissipated into the uh, um, heroin devastation and mm. drugs and crime well, kind of took over. What a shame. Um, so, like I said, it went from free love to epidemics of overdoses, crimes, and wow. kind of horrible. So, in the 80s, the area kind of made a comeback. Uh, the new generation was here. There was a, a very... 
growing and proud homosexual uh, community that developed right mm-hmm. there. And then uh, it was a scene uh, that had a lot of comedy in the area. This is where Robin Williams got his start. This is where Whoopi Goldberg got her start. So it was kind of a big deal. So you started, you know, 80s. It just saw a whole different. Uh, 80s were the best. 80s were the best year ever. That's when you turned like 40, right? You oh, the 80s. dog. <laughs> but, that's when my hair was high to heaven. So you had all that going on. Then you had a mixture of white, upper class, middle class families there. So mm-hmm. this was the resurgence of the area. Now, and I, when I found this out, I thought this was kind of funny. But the part of the resurgence that made it complete. Uh-huh. A McDonald's open at the far west end of the district. Oh, man. That's no. That's when you know. But in the 80s, you wouldn't think that. You would have thought there probably would have already been a McDonald's in the 80s there. Okay. But I guess. That can. That's, well, that's probably not true because I know when in the 80s, we had to go to Florence for our McDonald's. Okay. And nobody listening knows where that is. I know this, but I'm just saying. <laughs> my point I'm trying to make is back in the 80s, back in the day. When we, going to McDonald's was a big deal. Right. I mean, because we didn't have one where I lived in Dry Ridge at all. So, I mean, it was a big deal to go, you know, three or four exits down the interstate. Well, I don't doubt what you're telling me, but what I'm saying is there's a big difference between Dry Ridge and Florence, Kentucky, not having a McDonald's than not having one close to this place in San Francisco. No, San I San Francisco is a huge city. I well, just would ex- I, mean, I, I just expected that. them to have a lot more McDonald's around. Oh, yeah, where- a lot more. Well, I, I totally get that. But good for them. So just across the street from McDonald's, that McDonald's that was built is the Golden Gate Park where this tragedy happened. It's a, a popular tourist destination, but uh, it's got a lot of thugs and junkies yeah. and stuff like that. So uh, because they're searching for fixes, the cops would kind of tell the tourists probably a park to stay away from. Yeah, don't go there. Now, Leroy Carter Jr. was actually a man who was um, he'd survived the Vietnam War. Um, unfortunately, like a lot of Vietnam vets... He came home and basically had no direction, no guidance, and ended up homeless. No, that's so flipping wrong. I can't stand it. I know. that. Um, that's so damn wrong. There were so many people from the Vietnam War, at least in the United States, there were so many people that, that came back that they just, total lack of respect. Yeah. Oh it gosh. was almost like, uh, you know, it was their fault that they were there. I mean, and it wasn't. No. A lot of them guys didn't want to be there either. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was, you know. God bless every one of them. It's just a sad thing. So he actually found, you know, comfort being in the streets. He, he, you know, has used to surviving day to day when he was over in, in Vietnam. And, and uh, he felt like, you know, if he could survive, you know, every day in the jungles over there, surviving the streets of San Francisco was no big deal. That's what he was used to. That's what he was comfortable with. So he didn't mind being homeless. Now, Carter wasn't perfect, obviously, like a lot of people. He committed some small uh, petty thefts and stuff like that, some small crimes that um, basically it was just to try to make ends meet to get by. He yeah. might, he'd steal some food or, or maybe he'd, uh, right. you know, but he wouldn't like robbing people and stuff like that. But he would, you know, a lot of st- stealing of food and stuff like that to right. just try to, to try to make it day to day. And um, there was nothing about his life that seemed to be a link to the occult or voodoo or anything like that, which makes the story all that more strange. Now, so from the outside looking in, it just seems like that he just picked the wrong place to sleep. Oh. Wrong place, wrong time. So what made it look like an act of voodoo? That's the question because, you know, we've covered that that's what they thought, but we haven't really covered why. So when the police found Carter's body, he was actually still in a sleeping bag by the lake. His head was missing. 
It was sliced clean off. Oh, God. There were two corn cobs and a chicken wing that was jammed into his severed neck. Now, see, that's going to make me cry. You can't say that stuff. That is terrible. Well, are you okay? No. <laughs> I'm sorry, baby. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That's all that right. That just really makes me sad. That's all right. Fifty yards away from his body, the police found uh, the mutilated remains of several dead chickens. The case was assigned to San Francisco Police Department Inspector Sandy Gallant. And Sandy actually um, had just finished heading up the department's investigation uh, to Jonestown, the whole Guyana tragedy with Jim Jones down there. And there was some connections to that to San Francisco, and she headed up that. So she kind of became an expert in cults and um, ritualistic murders and stuff like that from that experience she got from that. So that's why they gave her the job. Now, many cults in the area were kind of created from the communal lifestyle of the 60s and 70s, which basically meant uh, when these hippies and stuff uh, were during the whole peace and love thing, a lot of them would get together and they would all live like a bunch of them, 10, 12, 14, 15 people in the same house. And yeah, it, they had that, it almost had an occult like feel, but they didn't really bother anybody. I mean, they just were just living together and they wanted mm-hmm. the same thing and they all stuck together, but they weren't violent or anything like that. Uh, but by this time, most of these things had kind of dissolved or um, had learned to live peacefully amongst everybody else. And a few of them though did become cults. So that's why they wanted to look into this. Now, this didn't look like the usual cult activity of this area. There's kind of signs and stuff like like the whole, you know, Manson type stuff. That's what you expected to see in the Southern California areas. Or it's more so that maybe they of, were more like gypsies or something. Yeah, well, well, maybe just, not to that extent. It's but. just that voodoo wasn't something you saw in San Francisco. That was more of a New Orleans or a Florida or or what have you type deal. So the dead chickens things pointed to something. Not common at all in San Francisco area. And um, so she kind of turned to the uh, one of her friends, which was actually Dade County, Florida, coroner Charles Weddle. Now, Charles Weddle was actually the country's leading expert in Santeria, which is why we played oh, Sublime Santeria at the, yeah. at the bottom. Now, I love that song, by the way. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Santeria, I thought I'd give you just a little bit of background on it. Santeria was actually brought to the New World on slave ships. It began with uh, the Yoruba people in Africa. Over in, uh, they were an African tribe that lived actually in the central part of uh, what they call north-central Nigeria today. Oh, okay. So that's how it kind of got started. It developed in, in the Caribbean and became more and more of what it is, where it merged with some elements of Christianity before coming to the southern coast of the U.S. And one of the more famous things we've talked about well, you didn't, but Ricky and I did. Robert the Doll, mm-hmm. that was what the uh, young ladies that, that came from the Bahamas, uh, the Robert the Doll's family had gotten these uh, slaves from uh, the Bahamas, uh-huh. and they're the ones that actually raised Robert, and they were caught practicing Santeria in the backyard, and oh. she banished them and left. The, so the slaves had to leave. She kicked them out and, and sent them back to the Bahamas. And before she did, one of the slaves actually made Robert the doll and gave it to Robert. Oh, how interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. So that's one of the more interesting parts of the Santeria. So, um, but as far as Santeria, those sacrifice plays a major role. 
and most of the use of live chickens, but there are some uh, underground sects that will search for human bodies. Oh. And that's kind of what we had going on here. So, Weddell informed Gallant that the ritual wasn't complete yet. So, even though they got this, the guy that's decapitated and this uh, other stuff done to him, if it was actually Santeria, the killer would actually return to the scene of the crime 42, la- 42 days later and return the victim's head. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. So they spent the next 41 days sifting through any kind of evidence that might be able to help them, and it went nowhere. So Gallant decided that she knew that day 42 was rapidly approaching, and on March 22, 1981, Gallant and her partners were back at the park waiting to see what would happen. So they, they staked out the spot where his uh, Carter's body was found, and despite them being there, the killer found his way back and placed the head in the weeds right next to Alfred Lake. Oh, my gosh. Without ever being seen. So now he had escaped from the scene of the crime twice with cops right there watching. So the killer had completed the ritual and gotten away again. The head gave police no new leads, and the case went cold. So Gallant became an um, basically an outspoken opponent of the, of the uh, role-playing game Dungeons & Dragons. She felt like that Dungeons & Dragons actually led teens and young people into suicide and cult activity. And she used to give lectures warning the parents of, of um, the dangers of it and occult murders and suicide mm-hmm. and, and all that stemming from the game. And Leroy Carter Jr. was buried at Arlington National Cemetery in Virginia, which yeah. was pretty cool. Yes, um, very nice. Leroy Carter Jr.'s murder is still currently unsolved to this day. Wow, unsolved. So I thought that was kind of a... a well, I'm just glad he got laid to rest. Yeah, and it's cool they took him all the way, even though he was out in San Francisco, all the way on the other side of the country. They took him to Arlington, because Arlington's a pretty prestigious place mm-hmm. for the military to be laid yes. to rest. That's where President Kennedy is. That's where several other famous people are. But uh-huh. I'd like to apologize to everybody. I didn't mean to have that breakdown, kind of. But that, I don't know, it just tore my heart out, knowing that that happened to that guy. And I just want to apologize for that. <laughs> Sorry about it. And that's why we can't do true crime. Oh, gosh. <laughs> That just killed my soul. So the other story that we wanted to do. So once again, thank Justin Rimmel for, uh, from Mysterious Circumstances for giving us that cool story. Um, I don't know if this is going to be any easier on you than what that one was. So. Well, I'll be all right. All right. This one is actually one of the more. I want to say curious, but I'm going to say more confusing stories in true crime history. Okay. So this actually is the murder in room 1046. <laughs> Ninja is extremely loud tonight. Sorry, guys. So this happened on January 2nd, 1935. A man checked into room 1046 of the Hotel President in Kansas City, Missouri. And they said that he kind of looked like he was between the ages of 20, 35 years old. Mm-hmm. He had a cauliflower ear and a scar on his head. So they had a pretty damn good description of yeah. what this guy looks like. He signed in as Roland T. Owen. Okay, and that's going to come into play a bunch. He didn't have any kind of bag. So when the, the bellboy actually took him up to his room, all he had was a comb, a brush, and a toothpaste. That's it. Nope. A toothbrush? 
Well, it just said it said a comb, a brush, and toothpaste. I'm assuming the brush had to be a toothbrush. Okay, good. Well, at least he had the most important thing with him to brush his teeth. Good job. This case would soon become one of the most bizarre in U.S. history. So, these things were eerie from the very beginning as mm-hmm. far as things that happened in this. It started with him settling into the room. So, the maid actually came up uh, on the day that he checked in to start cleaning. Which is, I mean, how do they come in and start cleaning the day you check? Well, I don't understand that. Well, that makes was, no sense. This was back in the 30s. They obviously did stuff different because you're going to see they come back to check for towels and stuff like every 20 minutes, it seems like. But So she, she says that when she comes in, he's actually sitting in a chair. He's got all the shades drawn, and there's only one small little light on in the corner, just barely enough to give any light in the room. But he's just sitting in the chair. Mm-hmm. And so she comes in, and he told her to... Uh, she's cleaning everything, and he told her to leave the door open because he was expecting a friend to come by. Okay. So no big deal. He left the room before she was actually done. So she finished up, and he left. So she finished up when she's done, left the door open like he said. Later, she said that he seemed kind of nervous, either nervous or scared, but she just couldn't really put her finger on it. But there was just something yeah, about something it. Off, that, off, yeah, off with him. Mm-hmm. So she comes back a few hours later. To replace the towels. And she found him laying on the bed, completely clothed, with all the lights off. So she thought that was strange. Once again, he's in the dark, but he's laying in the bed, but he's got all his clothes on. Just kind of laying there, chilling. She noticed that there was a note on the table that said, Don, I will be back in 15 minutes. Wait. She don't really understand why the note's there, because he's laying on the bed. Who's the note for? Oh. So 10.30 in the morning on January 3rd, the same maid, she actually returned to clean the room. She found the door locked from the outside. So she's thinking, okay, he's gone, obviously, because the door's locked. And I guess, you know, this is back in the 30s, so I'm I'm assuming you could lock the door from the inside, the outside, where now you just got the keys in it. But she could tell it was locked from the outside. She opens it. She, with her pass key, and she, she assumes that Owen's gone, but instead she finds him sitting there in the dark. So then the first question is, if he's sitting there in the dark, how'd the door get locked on the outside? Because you can't lock it on the outside if you're still on the inside. So so if somebody else had a key... <laughs> Some, somebody else locked yeah. the door from the outside while he was he in there. like the dark a lot. Maybe he had a migraine. Yeah, I don't think that's the case. <laughs> so a few seconds later, she said the phone rang. And uh, she overheard the conversation, and he picks it up, and he says, No, Don, I don't want to eat. I'm not hungry. I just had breakfast. And then she said a few seconds later, he reiterated, I'm not hungry. Don't make me tell you again. Yeah, more or less. Later that day, she returns to change up the towels. That's what I'm saying. In like what? a day and a half period, she done came in to change the towels twice. Now see, she done came in to clean the room twice. Yeah, that ain't the world today. You have to use the same towel like four different times <laughs> to save it. the water. I know it. <laughs> so yeah, and they pretty much tell you in the hotels, hang the tail unless you see green mold and smell mildew, keep using the same towel. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> so when she gets there to the door this time to change the towels out, and she knows there's no towels because she's already cleaned the room. Yeah. So she she knows there's no towels in there. And she gets to the room, and she hears two male voices talking. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And she knocks on the door, and they say, who is it? And she said, I need to switch the towels out. 
and she said that some a, a kind of a gruff, like a gruff voice, voice said, "We don't need any towels." Which she knew was a lie because she knew there was no towels in there. But either way, she took her hint and she left. But I wonder why she didn't ask him when he was sitting in the dark. Sir, are you okay? Why are you sitting in the dark? I don't know. I guess people back then mind their own business. Oh, dang. So that's my thought. Yeah. So she, a lot of this, as far as what went on the rest of the afternoon, is kind of a complete mystery. There's not a whole lot known about what happened. But I know that later that night, a motorist by the name of Robert Lane said he picked up a hitchhiker several blocks from the hotel. He said it was cold. But the man was only dressed in pants and a t-shirt. He said he had a deep scratch on his arm. And he asked Lane if he could take him somewhere where he could get a cab. I don't know why he wouldn't have just asked him to take him to the hotel. Well, duh. That is a dumb <laughs> but, well, What the heck? But that's what he said. So Lane said, he looked. At, he said, look, hey, it looks like you're having a bad night. And the man said, I'll kill that son of a bitch tomorrow. Oh, dang. That's what this... So that's what this this Roland Owen said. Mm-hmm. Now, how do we know that this was Roland Owen? I'm not going to tell you right this second, but it will come to light later that that's who this was in the cab. So the next morning at 7 a.m., the operator at the hotel room noticed that the phone in 1046 was off the hook. So she sends the bellboy up, Randolph Probst, which was the original uh, bellboy who took him up mm-hmm. uh, when he noticed that he just had no bags in the, yeah. in the comb and all that stuff. He gets up there and he notices that the door's locked and he's going he's going to try to come in, right? And he's so he can't come in, so he knocks and he says, "Hey, uh, I'm here to see about the phone." And he hears a voice from inside say, "Okay, come on in." And he tried to come in, but it was and locked. The door was locked. Right. Yeah. So he knocks on the door again and he says, "Hey, I I can't come in because the door's locked." And the, and the voice tells him, "Come on in and turn the lights on." Oh, well, well, hello. Did you not hear me say the door was yeah, locked? Yeah, once again, he can't do that. So this guy, you know, the bellboy, he's assuming he's drunk. And so he knocks a few more times, and then he just finally just yelled in there, hey, can you please hang the phone up? Oh, yeah. So that was kind of the end of it for the minute. So a little bit later, they noticed that it's still not on the hook. So they sent a different bellboy up. This bellboy lets himself in with a passkey. And uh, he just walks in. Now, he never turns a light on. He just walks in. Uh-huh. And using the light from the hallway, he sees that the phone's off the cradle. It's been knocked over or yeah. something to stand where the phone was. So he goes over there and he hangs the phone up. Now, he does notice that the guy laying there in the bed, completely naked. Butthole naked. Butthole naked. Assumes he's drunk. And with a little bit of light that's in there, said it to look like there a little bit of darkening around him in the sheets. Oh, my gosh. This apparently didn't re- raise any kind of uh, alarm or anything to the guy. What, he thought might maybe maybe threw up or something? Right. I don't know what he thought it was. But I guess he maybe just thought it was just the lights playing tricks, tricks on him. Tricks with his eyes, yeah. So, he gets everything done. He goes back downstairs. Problem solved. A few hours later, the phone was off the hook again. Oh, so my gosh. they sent probes to first bellboy, who didn't back accomplish up. anything, back up. And uh, he used his passkey to open the door, and then he was shocked at what he saw. Oh. He said within two feet of the door, he saw Roland Owen. He was on his his hand, his elbows, and in his knees. So picture that. It's almost like you're just 
you know, almost in a doggy style type thing. But instead of your hands down, you got your knees. He's on his knees, his elbows, and he's holding his head in his hands. Wait. Elbows. Like with his hands grasped just around his face or like. Right. I know that's kind of hard to that, picture, but well, my gosh, what's he's he basically on all fours, but instead of having his palms down, he's got his elbows and he's holding his head. So if you think about it, you can picture it. Yeah, yeah. So he's down there and he notices that uh, he's covered in blood, so he flips the lights on. And when he flips the lights on, there was blood all over the blankets and the sheets, which was the discoloration that the other guy oh, saw. Oh, that's what he saw? He There was blood on the ceiling. The ceiling? There was ceiling? blood on the walls and there was blood all in the bathroom. Oh, dude. They call the cops. Cops come in. They see that he had been tied up, tortured. His head had been beat several times with a blunt object. He'd been stabbed several times. He had a a collapsed lung. That would be found out at the hospital later. So they knew something horrible happened. Later on, the doctor actually checked him out in the hospital. They had determined that he had been tortured for six or seven hours. Oh, man. And so he sat there with all those hours with that. So then when he was saying, come in and turn on the lights, I guess he was probably asking for help. Like, hello. He probably didn't have a clue what was going on, but it had already happened. Because like I said, he'd had multiple blows to the head. Oh, my god! So when the cops actually asked him uh, what happened, he said that he fell and hit his head on the bathtub. Okay. Which would have been kind of hard to just do, considering Um, he had multiple stab wounds and blood on the ceiling and blood on the, you know. I wonder why he didn't want to say. I don't know. But it could just be he probably was just out of it, is my guess. Yeah. And so they go ahead and take him to the hospital. Unfortunately, he slipped into a coma and died later that night. Now, if you think that's strange, well, you haven't heard anything yet. Because the strangest is just getting ready to start happening. So the authorities scoured the room, okay? Mm-hmm. They, they're trying to find anything and everything they can, some kind of evidence. The only thing they really found was a label from a necktie, an unsmoked cigarette, a woman's hairpin, two water glasses, one of which had four prints on it, which was possibly a woman, a safety pin, and a small bottle of sulfuric acid. Now, I don't know what they would have used the sulfuric acid for, yeah. but... Well, um, if that was a woman, her lips would have been all over that wine glass. So, what well, didn't say it was a wine glass, just said it was a glass. Oh, well, it doesn't matter. It'd still be on there. The most baffling part was yet to come, though. The police tried to confirm his identity because he was told, they were told when he checked in, he was Roland Owen from uh, L.A. Well, they couldn't find a Roland Owen that matched that description anywhere from L.A. So, apparently, he checked in with a fake name. Why? Nobody knows. I don't know, but it's kind of a cool name when you say it. It's a lot better than what his real name turns out to be. So, the body was actually brought to a local funeral home and publicly displayed. They were hoping to find somebody that would say, hey, I know who this is. Oh, yeah, I know who this is. And they went ahead and and even put it in the paper. uh, Everything that they knew about the case, hoping Mm -hmm. somebody would come forward. Well, several people came in to the viewing and said that it looked really familiar, uh, but It was under different names. Everybody knew him as somebody else. And police were uh, prepared to just bury him in a uh, what they call a potter's field, which is where they bury uh, people that, you know, they don't don't have any family. They don't know who they are. They were going to list him as a John Doe. And that was just going to be the end of it. Well, the funeral home got a very strange phone call. The phone call asked if the if the burial could be delayed 
until the money arrived to cover a proper funeral. And the guy went on to say that Roland um, was his real name mm-hmm. and that he was engaged to his sister. Ah. And he wanted him. Oh, not Roland's sister. Right. Oh, my right. gosh. I was about to take another to, bad to this guy's sister. And he wanted him buried in Memorial uh, Cemetery where he could be close to his sister. Oh. So. Well, that was a nice gesture. Yeah, it's still kind of odd, though, that somebody's just going to make this call yeah, as to who really he random. is and just offer the pay for the funeral and mm-hmm. all that stuff. So, he got, he as he was on the phone, he just said that Roland got into a jam and that police were on the wrong track. So, it just makes the phone call that much more odd. So, the money actually arrived anonymously. It was uh, uh, on, delivered by special delivery, and it was in a rolled-up newspaper, cash, in a rolled-up newspaper. Wow, that's crazy. That's different. <laughs> so, they laid the body to rest in Memorial Park uh, Cemetery under the name Roland Owen, which the caller insisted was real. What's even more mysterious, or equally mysterious, I'm going to say it's even more, is money showed up at a florist to buy a bouquet of roses. It was a specific amount. It was like 10, I can't remember the 10 or I think it was 13, a uh, certain amount of roses. It was, oh, it was like, roses. it was like, it was 12 or 13 roses of a certain type of roses. Oh. And they wanted it to put over top of the, the grave, or the, the grave casket? site. Yeah, the grave site. Oh, okay. Because it was going to be done at the cemetery. Oh, I gotcha. But it came with a card that said, Love Forever, Louise. Oh. Now. Well, it sounds to me like somebody's conscience were. Somebody's, but it just, you know, it just keeps getting weirder and weirder. So now, a year later, 1936, a woman in Birmingham, Alabama, she's sitting there and she's reading the uh, account of what this murder was in a magazine called American Weekly. And she starts thinking and she says, man, the dead man listed here might be my my friend's missing son. So she goes over to her and says, hey, I think we might have found your, your, your son. And she starts looking into it. Well, her son, Artemis, Artemis? Ogletree. What? Excuse me, what? Artemis Ogletree. Oh. Was his name. And he had left home in April of 1934. Well, he said he wanted to see the world and all that kind of stuff. She kind of went up to the uh, Kansas City and she confirmed that Roland Owen was indeed her son, Artemis Ogletree. Oh. Keep in mind, the man confirmed that he was this guy. Yes. So there's already a big contradiction. But this mystery is far from over. So in the early 2000s, 70 years after all this happened, a guy by the name of uh, Dr. John Horner, who was doing some research and stuff like that at the, at the Kansas City Public Library, he received an anonymous phone call. It was from out of state. And it said that this guy that made the phone call said that he he was doing, um, he had a client, I guess, that was elderly that passed away. So he's going through some boxes and, yeah. and stuff that belonged to him. And he found a bunch of clippings, newspaper clippings about the story. Yes. But he also said he found an object that was mentioned in those newspaper clippings. And then when Dr. Horner asked him what kind of object was it, the guy hung up and he never heard from him again. Ah, uh, what it was? I don't know. Nobody knows. So, it, yeah. So, let's start talking about, um, I guess, some things that kind of tie this case together a little bit. For example, Gene Owen 
which is no relation by any means. She was giving her 1048 next door the same night. Yes. Okay. She said she was continually bothered by sounds of a male and a female voice arguing violently in the other room. So she could hear this arguing back and forth. Now, supposedly there was a party going on in like 1056 yeah, or something like that. Room, it yeah. was, and So it was possible that that came from there, but she was sure that it came from next door. She also said that she heard gasping, which she assumed was just somebody, you know, drunk or whatever the deal was. She actually thought about calling the front desk, but didn't. So, so she could actually make out the words they were saying when they were arguing? I don't know her? if she could make it out. She could just tell that it was yeah. a male and a female voice. Now, there also was a guy named Charlie Blocker. He was the graveyard elevator shift guy. So he he operated the elevator uh-huh. uh, at the nighttime. He said that there was a woman that came in. He took her to the 10th floor, and she was looking for room 1026, which is close to... It's 1026, what she was looking for. Yeah. But 1046 46. was Roland's own. So they think that maybe she was looking for his room and she was confused. So she gets there and, and she tells the guy, hey, I'm I'm at room 1026. I can't find the gentleman that I'm supposed to be seeing. Now, according to the uh, elevator operator, this was a lady who frequented the hotel a lot Ooh. into a different, lot of different men's rooms. Yes. If you know what I mean. I know what you mean. He said that she called back. And since she couldn't find the man, could he come up to the 10th floor and pick her back up? He does. He then takes her down to the lobby. About 15 minutes later, she finds she's got a guy. They get back on the elevator. They go up to the 9th floor. And he lets them off. And then eventually, uh, that lady left the hotel at like 4 o'clock in the morning. And then the other guy left like 15 minutes later that she was with. Uh-huh. So... They don't know if she has any connection at all or if the man or the woman had any connection at all to the case or if it was just random. But it's odd that they were there that night and the lady said she heard a man and a woman arguing in that room and then all this took place. Mm-hmm. So nobody really knows if they had anything to do with the case or not, but the elevator um, man seemed to think they were very suspicious mm-hmm. after knowing the facts. Now, at the funeral home, there were some strange occurrences too. I told you there were people coming in and visiting to try to figure out if they knew him or, or not know him. Well, one of the guys that came in said that he had just stayed at a different hotel, a very high-class hotel the night before, under the name of Eugene Scott. And before that, the St. Regis Hotel. So he, he was going in and out of all these different hotels in Kansas City for whatever reason. So it just doesn't make sense. And you add in all of his... Constantly being in the dark and there's mm-hmm. strange phone calls to the guy Don and all that stuff. Who's Don? And, and, you know, nobody really can find out. Now, you had several bartenders in the area that said they had seen him around town with two different women at the same time. It sounds like it was a whore. It does sound like that. And But they also said he always had a different name. That they didn't know him by the, by the, the Roman right. Owen. Yeah. They knew him by other names. Now, nine days later, a wrestling promoter by the name of uh, Tony Bernardi, visited, and uh, he said that Roland had shown up to him and tried to become a wrestler. He wanted to, which makes sense because if you, he had a cauliflower ear. Yeah, I was going to ask you about and that. A lot of uh, like high school, college amateur wrestlers, not yeah. professional wrestlers, a lot of them have cauliflower ears just from the wrestling. But he showed up, so he probably had a wrestling background. Yeah. So he showed up and wanted to be a wrestler, but his name was Cecil Warren. Is what he told him his name I don't was. even know how he could keep up with all those names anyway. <laughs> Apparently he couldn't. 
So the question is, was this maybe a love triangle gone bad? I mean, was Don and this girl and him all, you know, part of something mm-hmm. yeah. nefarious going on? And then in the spring of 1935, after Roland died, three typed letters actually arrived at his mom's house. And the first thing odd about that is Roland didn't know how to type. Mm-hmm. But these letters came and uh, the mom said that after she got them, like I said, obviously they came after he'd passed away, which was odd. And the fact that he didn't know how to type. And she said the letters didn't come across the base of the letters. It didn't have that same vibe. Oh, so as if the letters Roland were from Riddle. him. It, supposedly they were from Roland. Oh. But she says she knows they weren't from him. Oh, so she could just tell So yeah. who sent the letters? Because she said she could tell by the writing that it wasn't the way he would have talked. What's in the letters? I wonder. Well, Do you know? a couple of different things. She actually received um, a strange phone call from somebody named Jordan. And Jordan said that he was living in Egypt and he had met a real wealthy girl in Cairo and that's where he had married her. But we both know that wasn't the case because she already knew that her son was dead. So I don't know why this guy would bother to call to tell her all this stuff. What in the world? And, and the Jordan guy said that said that uh, he had actually he saved his life, that her son had saved his life in Egypt. But he had never been to Egypt. And, and in the letters, they all stated something similar. They were all these different things about how he was living abroad and all this stuff. But she had already confirmed by the pictures and everything that her son was, in fact, Roland Owen that was dead up there. Well, that is bizarre. And that is pretty much all we have on the case, except for one little last detail that I thought was very interesting. Her son, Roland, who passed away, what her son was Artemis, he was 17 years old. What? 17? 17. So all this that happened was a 17-year-old boy. Well, wow. So I thought that, that was a really is, cool story. That so is very cool. That, that's about as bizarre as it gets. Well, that and like is I said, pretty bizarre. And I, like I said, I know either one, neither one of these stories we did were paranormal. Yeah. But I thought they both had facets mm-hmm. of what the hell. So to this day, nobody knows who Don is. You know, was that the guy with the gruff voice? Yeah. So nobody's ever solved there? that murder I mean, either. Nobody, well, I mean, it's the same same murder. Well, I mean, that's why I'm, I'm just saying. saying. But nobody knows who Don is. Yeah. Nobody. Knows. You know, was was that the guy that? That was up there with the the lady of the evening that was looking for the room. Was that Don? Nobody knows because the maid, as many times as the maid stuck her nose in there, she never saw Don. But, you know, and then then you've got to deal with the lady said, hey, there was a man and woman up there arguing at night. So who was the woman? You know, and then you got the caller who calls the funeral home and says that uh, Roland was an ex-fiance to his sister. And he went from the cemetery, so he would be close to his sister. So does that mean his sister was dead? Was his sister Louise? Mm-hmm. Was that was that why it said you know forever Louise? Yeah, I feel like I feel like Don has a very guilty conscience. You know, or did Roland do something to Louise, and that's why she's dead? And this was Ro- uh, this was Don's way of getting even. But that doesn't sound right because he seemed to be friendly with Don. Well, I don't know how a seventeen-year-old has all this experience. I don't either. Doing and, then, all this stuff. and then at the other hotels, I never in a million years would have known he would be seventeen. The other hotels that he stayed in, they were saying that he had spent stayed there with another man. So I mean, was there something of that going on? Which mm-hmm. in the '30s uh, wouldn't have been the most acceptable thing in the yeah. world, you know. So who knows? This this thing has so many loose ends, and and nothing has ever been tied up. 
I mean, it sounds like he enjoyed himself. Well, he, I could. He probably didn't then. enjoy that last day. Well, I'm sure he didn't enjoy that I, day. I'm but. wondering where the guy's money came from to be able to stay at all these expensive hotels. Mm-hmm. and Because there was even the, the bellboy, the original bellboy said that he was going to stay in um, the hotel that I'd mentioned before. I can't remember the, the name of it right off the bat. But he was going to stay there, but it was like $5 a night and it was too expensive. <laughs> oh, my gosh. And But the thing of it is, he actually did stay there. Because they had already got proof that he had stayed there the night before. I don't know. That is a messed up story, though, I know. Yeah, so I thought that was a pretty cool story, and, and I'm glad we did it. And uh, I, It was one of the more fascinating stories that I've looked into. So, But I wish I wish they would eventually find out what went on just so there could be closure. But, I mean, everybody involved with it has since passed. I mean, hell, that was 1935. So yeah. It's, uh, it's been a long time ago. Yeah. But anyways... Uh, that's what we got for you as far as that story. Now I want to do uh, uh, play this interview for you with Lee. And like I said, it's a little bit of an interview just about uh, the show, but it's it's really fun because Lee tells us a couple of paranormal stories. So your paranormal stories are coming. They're just not coming from me. And uh, let me know what you think about this one when we get through. We'll be right back. All right, guys, we have our first repeat guest on the show. Uh, well, I say that, but that's not really true because uh, Andrea Whitney was on, but she doesn't host a podcast. So this is our first repeat podcaster that's on the show. Uh, we're going to welcome uh, Lee from Don't Break the Oath podcast, our, our uh, good buddies from over in Grimsby, England. Lee, how are you doing today, brother? Yeah, I'm really good. I just uh, wish you'd left that Grimsby bit out. Well, Nobody over here knows, so it's, I'm sure. I'm sure if Grin, is Grimsby like a, a bad part of England or something, or does it have a bad reputation? It's just a shithole. Well, most people listening probably feel like where they live is a shithole, so it's probably yeah, well, probably not. Oh, well, we're, we're all in the same boat. You make make me feel better now, right? <laughs> well, and, and you have a co-host on the show, Andy, which is under the weather and uh, couldn't be with us tonight. So uh, his loss, your gain, I guess. You get to talk and hog the whole mic. Yeah, well, uh, I'm I'm grateful for the opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> so much to your um, credit, you guys for have been doing this for close to two years now, right? Uh, uh, April, yeah, yeah. I guess I guess uh, uh, probably uh, in different guises, though. I mean, obviously, I started the show with Steve, um, and I think Andy sort of came into it sort of April time uh, last year. So yeah, I think I've been doing it nearly a couple of years with Andy. Yeah, and then a little bit with Steve before that, so yeah. Now you guys, if you was to describe your show, I mean, you you talk a little bit about everything from UFOs to paranormal to cryptids, you name it, it's it's a little bit of everything. You've even had some episodes on like Flat Earth and that type of stuff. So if you was to describe Mm. your show to someone that hasn't heard it, how would you best describe it? Hmm. Uh, Yeah. Well, it is a mixed bag, isn't it? I mean, it's predominantly paranormal. Um, it's predominantly dogman. It's predominantly dogman. Well, <laughs> no, it's predominantly paranormal, but everything ends up being a dogman. <laughs> <laughs> and luckily, we won't need to go into dogman today because Andy's not here. So, uh, but no, generally, uh, it is it is paranormal. Like you like you say, we cover UFOs and uh, crypt- uh, cryptozoology, that kind of stuff as well. Mysteries. We have some. Um, guests on that, you know, might bring up something that people might not be aware of, uh, including ourselves, which is always fun. 
Um, but no, generally it is the paranormal and it's probably like, um, you know, 15 other podcasts that people may have listened to on the paranormal. Uh, but we sort of give it a different slant based on our paranormal experiences. Uh, so we put, you know, if, if we think something is this way because of something we've experienced, then we'll put that, you know, we'll give our opinion as towards that. But we're not saying we're, we're 100% right. Um, well, Andy is, but, um, <laughs> you know, we're, we're just giving our opinion basically. So you don't just get the story, you get opinions as well. Um, you know, some you'll like, some you won't, but that's, that's life. But you know, the reality of it is, and I, I think I touched on this in one of our previous episodes is, we're all really just given our opinion. I mean, let's be honest. The paranormal, there's – while most of us believe, it's still not proven. So, I mean, for me to say, oh, Susie came in and this ghost came out and this and that, that's really still just an opinion because there's no proof that that ever really happened. We're taking somebody's word for it. So we can't mm. treat it completely as fact ever, I don't think. No. Um, <clears throat> I suppose – what I should, uh, way that maybe better way to phrase it then is what, because we've had paranormal experience ourselves, we don't necessarily, necessarily, you know, go down the skeptical route on a lot of this stuff. We sort of take it, um, as read that it, this, these occurrences happen as stated. Um, obviously, um, you know, we've had this issue before with people have got in touch with us, but if we're doing a UFO story, we're doing a UFO story. Okay. So we're not, we're not, there to talk about this UFO story, then start telling you that it could have been, you know, the Northern Star, it could have been Venus, it could have been this, it could have been swamp gas. You know, we try and we we, we try and assume people think that anyway, so we leave that out. Um, so we give our opinions based on, you know, the paranormal side of the story, if you like, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Absolutely. So let's do let's talk about this real quick because it kind of goes without saying. But you guys have been on the show before. A lot of our listeners already listen to you. Uh, but we did get some feedback. You've gotten some feedback that some people felt like the sound quality wasn't totally up to par. Uh, you and I have talked about that and, uh, you've taken some steps and now you've upgraded all your equipment. You've got uh, two or three episodes out on the new equipment. And, uh, I think it sounds great. That's, uh, a similar setup to what Tracy and I use. And I, I would just encourage anybody out there, if you listened to the show in the past and that was the deterrent, uh, the way you didn't listen, because let's be honest, your content is great. Uh, I love the content of the show. It's very enjoyable. Uh, but I could definitely understand, you know, if it sounded a little bit of, uh, a muffled, why some people would be turned off by that. So, uh, every, you know, to me, that's not that big of a deal, but to some people, it's a huge deal depending on how they listen to the show. But, you know, that's 100% corrected, and the show sounds absolutely great these days. So I wanted to point that out to anybody who had listened that didn't realize that already. Yeah, well, uh, thank you thank you very much for that. I mean, yeah, we did uh, take, you know, your advice and, uh, and you know, and others, and we did take steps to put that right. And uh, I think, obviously, some of the shows that are still on the feed – um, you know, the earlier ones, I've removed a lot of them because of storage reasons, but, um, a lot of the earlier ones do have the, the crap, the, well, the shit sound quality, shall we say. So, yeah, but like you say, we've maybe done three or four episodes with the new, the new gear. So at least, you know, if you listen from sort of 
three episodes back, sort of, so I think we're up to 76 or something like that. So if you listen from sort of 70 onwards, you're probably getting um, the, the, the good shit. Uh, not, I'm not saying we're, I'm not saying the, 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 what you're going to listen to is good. Right. But what I'm saying is the, the sound quality is good. Well, uh, you know, like I said, I, the content's always been good. That's never, uh, never been an issue. And you've, you're starting as the show goes on, you're getting better and better guests on also, just like we have. Uh, so mm-hmm. you, you've got some, some well-established authors and, and, uh, on everything from UFOs to cryptids and some really good interviews. So if you like that sort of thing, uh, you can definitely get that on your show. Plus, I think you and Andy, um, your your banter back and forth, and and uh, I won't say arguing, but sometimes it turns into definitely a difference of opinion. Uh, I think yeah. it. I think it yeah, really comes it across. It is an way. argument. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I was trying to be polite, but but I think it. Diplomatic. I think, yeah. I think that's part of the charm of the show. I mean, that's the parts that I like because you don't always agree. Yeah, well, that's that's what we think because we think sometimes we come off the mics and we think. I wonder if people were sat home, you know, maybe two people, you know, I guess it doesn't happen very often where two people might be listening to what, the same podcast, but we, we imagine a situation where maybe two or three people are listening to a podcast um, and they have a difference of opinions because with this paranormal stuff, you know yourself, me and you have got different opinions on certain things as well. So it's not because, you know, it's not like everyone's sort of, oh, we all believe the paranormal, so we all believe this, you know what I mean? It's, uh, you know, like mermaids, you know, I, 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 you know, I think that's just absolute bullshit. Uh, whereas Andy believes 100% that mermaids are real. So, you know, obviously we've got a difference of opinion there. Um, you know, so that obviously is going to lead to some sort of, um, well, argument, isn't it? But we imagine that people at home would have similar differing views, potentially. So, so let me we, make sure. We, we sort of, you know, we sort of argue. I hope that people are, are following along the show, arguing as well for a bit of luck. So Andy actually believes there are mermaids. Yep, he's uh, 100% crackers. <laughs> <laughs> well, he said he's, he's on the fence. That's what he said. He's on the fence about mermaids. Uh, God love it. But I, I'm not. <laughs> okay, so when we talked uh, earlier in the week, you said you were going to work up a, uh, a story or two for us. Uh, so what I'm going to do, uh, since we've talked about your show a little bit and, and what you guys do, um, I'm going to let you treat our listeners into uh, a story that you got for us. So I'm just going to turn the microphone over to Lee, you, Lee. Okay. Well, um, <clears throat> yeah, obviously we spoke earlier in the week and what I decided to do, um, is we, we've just recorded an episode, which is going to be t- entitled, uh, ghost that kill. Um, cause again, this crops up every now and again, we'll be talking about a ghost story and um, with, you know, that a ghost that's got ill intent, whatever. And me personally, I don't believe that ghosts can kill, okay? I don't believe there's such a thing as a bad ghost, even. Uh, you know, this, I don't, you know, I, I'm, I stay away from the word demon, okay? But Andy, he believes that there is de- such a thing as demons. He won't do a Ouija board, for example, that kind of stuff. So obviously we've got different opinions there. So we decided that we do a show about stories where a ghost has allegedly killed somebody or had some part in, uh, the, you know, the victim's death, okay? So, what I decided to do is because we've done a show on it, I decided that, you know, I'd, I'd come on you, with you and maybe touch on a couple of these stories and get your opinion on them and that. Um, so shall I start with the first one? Sure. Okay. Well, this one is the, this is the curse of the grave of the, of Cal Pruitt. Okay. 
And this is in your neck of the woods. This is in uh, Kentucky, uh, but it's actually in, in is it Palu- Paluska County? Pulaski. Pulaski, is how you say it. Mm-hmm. See, that's why you're here. So, you know, Pulaski County, this this takes place in back in 1938. Now, uh, there, there is a bit of conjecture about that, but I'll get to that later on. Okay. <clears throat> so, essentially, what we've got, we've got a guy here called Cal Pruitt, who was a carpenter, okay? And he goes out, usual thing, gets finished early, okay? So, he comes home, walks in the house, expecting to see his missus in the kitchen. She's not there. He goes into the bedroom, and lo and behold, there she is, having it away, bit of the old in out, with somebody else, okay? So there's another man in the bed. Obviously, he's a bit pissed off at this. So he grabs the chain, because obviously you'll know yourself, you've probably got a chain in your bedroom. Of course. For whatever reason, he had a chain. (laughs) Well, don't answer that, don't answer that. (laughs) But, uh, (laughs) but, um, he grabs a chain, he strangles his wife, while this, uh, other fella, he jumps out the window and off his scarpers. He strangles his missus to, you know, she, she obviously dies. Uh, at that point, he's, uh, you know, he's grief stricken and he realizes what he's done and he pulls out his revolver and blows his brains out. Wow. Okay, so they both die at this point. Now, a couple of days later or whatever, they go to bury these uh, two in this cemetery. Now, the, the wife's family really didn't want this guy to be, obviously there was husband and wife, so there's going to be buried together, and that the family didn't want this guy, you know, who just killed her, to be anywhere near him. So they decided that they'd put him in a different graveyard across town. Um, so that's the first thing that happens. Now, the story got around about this guy and what he'd done, and that in the urban legend sprung up that, you know, his grave was haunted and all the rest of it. So... It starts really in, uh, like, say, in 1938, when these three lads decide to go and investigate the grave. Okay, so just three, you know, teenagers messing about, and one of the lads called James Collins decided to show his mates that he wasn't scared of this curse and didn't believe in it. So he picks up a rock and throws it at the gravestone, chipping a piece of the gravestone off. Okay, now the reason that was there is because the legend had got around, and apparently this was true that. Over the course of the few days that the gravestone had been sitting in the grave, it had actually formed these brown circles, started to form these brown circles on it, and they linked together to resemble a chain actually on the gravestone itself. So that's why people were curious to go out there and have a look. So this little lad, James Collins, he chips a bit of this gravestone off. He says, I'm not afraid of any ghost. Dun, 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 dun. Anyway, so he jumps on his bicycle, and he, he's, bi- you know, he's biking home, when all of a sudden his chain, his bicycle chain, breaks free and uh, manages to wrap around his throat and strangle him. Okay, so he dies. So then we get James's mother. Okay, she, she goes to bury her son. She hears about how this apparently came about. The, you know, the care, this was part to do with the curse, the, the lads tell her. So she's obviously grief-stricken at the time. She decides she's going to go and destroy this grave in her anger. Okay, so she grabs an axe shoots off to the grave and smashes it into, apparently, into into very small pieces. She goes home, she feels much better. She has a, you know, she has a drink and all the rest of it. Anyway, next day is just an ordinary day, so she's going to do the, the laundry. Okay, so she goes out. She um, starts pegging up the laundry on the line. When the line breaks, 
or she trips into it. It's not clear which. She trips into the line, let's say, and the line breaks and coils around the neck. And obviously then she's got it's tethered at one end, the weight of the washing on the other end. The more she struggles, the tighter it gets. Uh, and obviously she uh, she dies. Okay, so another victim of the grave. Now, it's, it's alleged that when the people came to investigate, the police or whatever came to look at this uh, situation, they found the axe that she, the very same axe that she'd used to break that grave. Okay, still had the the granite or whatever, the, the dust all over this axe. And everyone knew that she'd gone and done this because she told people she was going to do this. So this, these two police officers have to go and investigate the grave because you're not actually allowed to go and smash graves up even if the per, <laughs> the ghost killed one of your relatives, okay? No kidding. Is, so, is that just an English thing? Because I think we do that here. It, yeah, it's probably, yeah, it's probably <laughs> different in America. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so the police officers go to investigate the grave. Now, one of the police officers didn't didn't believe this. You know, he thought it was baloney, the, you know, the case is no such thing. Whereas the other officer, he was a bit more um, a bit more of a believer, shall we say. So he, he didn't want anything to do with it, really. And when they get there, the grave's still intact. It's perfectly intact. There's not a chip in it. There's not anything. But the, the, the chain marks are still there. But apart from that, the grave in itself is intact, which, you know, should be impossible. But obviously we're talking about a cursed grave. So anyway, they take photos and all the rest of it at the gravestone. You know, he sits on it and he, you know, yeah, I don't care. I'll sit on the grave, all that kind of stuff. So anyway, they leave the grave, uh, the cemetery, and they're driving back when they notice a bright light in the rearview mirror. Now, at first they think it's just another car or some sort of glare reflection of something, but it's coming from the cemetery. It, you know, way on. So the driver gets a bit spooked by this, you know, because now he's a bit, you know, maybe the case was real kind of thing. So he starts speeding up, but obviously the passenger's telling him to slow down to stop, but he, he he's not going to do it. But this this light's following him, it's getting closer and closer. Um, so he drives, comes driving more erratic, uh, more speed, and eventually he leaves the road and plows into a fence. The passenger, the guy who, who believed you know, the case was most likely true. He flies through the windscreen, lands on, lands in the field. After a short while, he, he manages to gather himself, get his uh, self together, and he's mostly unarmed. He's just got cuts and bruises. But he walks back to the car to uh, see if his friend's okay, and obviously on looking in the car, he realised that his friend is almost decapitated because he's um, managed to, these two friends posts that they crashed into had a chain across them, uh, that chain again, and that managed to almost decapitate his friend. Okay. So, you know, weird's really getting around now, um, and most people are staying away from this grave at this point, but every now and again, you get somebody, a bit of bravado, you know, and this turns out to be this farmer. Now, this farmer and his family were, were riding past, there was on a horse and buggy, riding past the... Um, the grave and he says that you know i'm not afraid of this case and all that so he draws his revolver and fires a few shots into the grave obviously damage it in the process well firing a revolver of any or any gun to be frank while sitting on a horse-drawn carriage is not the most sensible thing to do because the horses get spooked okay right. and they take off running yeah you know you know how easily horses are spooked so off they go uh, now it's some accounts say the family jumped off 
in the panic. Some accounts say that the, 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 the horse and buggy crashed and the, the family managed to uh, come off uh, unharmed. Okay, but the farmer himself, he, he, he was flung over the top of the horses, tangled up in their reins, and uh, as the horses run away or bolted, he was strangled to death. So, another victim of the grave. Let me come on to the final victim of the grave. And this is a guy called Arthur Lewis. Now, apparently this guy, he heard about the curse and all the rest of it, and he was another one, he didn't believe it. I don't know why people just don't believe it and just stay away from it, you know. But <laughs> for whatever reason, these people who don't believe it need to prove that they don't believe it. So Arthur Lewis, he has a few drinks, I'm sure, and this night he decides he's going to go and destroy the grave. Okay. So he goes set, set with his hammer and his chisel, and he goes to the grave and he starts whacking it. The grave, I mean. So he starts banging away at the grave, and uh, the people in the vicinity – could could hear the noises of the hammer and chisel striking the, you know, the, the granite or whatever it, the gravestone was made of, and um, the, the, they say that the, the the whacking of the hammer was replaced shortly thereafter by screams, uh, and then the screams all of a sudden stopped. So a couple of the local uh, villagers, if you could call them, you know, grab the torches and the pitchforks and they shoot out there to see what's going on, and they find him laid by the gates of the cemetery. Now the the gates were. Slightly ajar, but there was cha- there was had a chain round him, okay. Uh, but he managed to just prise him open enough to get through. And anyway, it, the, on the way out, from whatever scared him or whatever he was running from, he managed to um, run into this chain. Uh, and obviously, they're not sure whether that that was what killed him or whether he had an heart attack because of the shock. We don't know, but we just know that he was found at the gates of the cemetery, um, with. With, you know, with chain marks around his throat from running into him, uh, and dead. So another victim of the grave. Okay, so at this point, apparently it's said that the people who... Uh, this is not a very big grave, okay, at the time. I don't think there was many people really living in this particular area. But the, the graveyard had obviously a few bodies in it, and people started exhuming the bodies of their relatives and moving them out of this graveyard because they didn't want to be in the same graveyard as what was going on. And eventually, the only grave left in there was Cal Pruitt's. Now, it's said that the the local, um, do you, I don't know if you call it a council in uh, America, but you know the, the the local governors or whatever, they decided to remove the gravestone once and for all and, and put an end to this. So they removed it, and it said that a mining operation a couple of years later came through there and tore up the ground, uh, and you know, so that it's it's lost now. It's lost to history. Uh, so that put the end, that put the end there to the curse. So what do you make of that? I don't know if I believe any of that. No, I'm just playing mm. with you. I, th- I mean, I'm really big when it comes in all these, whether you want to call them coincidences or, um, I mean, I don't know like you if I believe someone can, a ghost can kill you from beyond the grave. But I also don't think that everything is a ghost. I think there are demons. I think that there are uh, evil presences. Um, so do I think that something could definitely lead a hand into something like that? I absolutely do. Because if you go into the whole bell, Witch story, um, that supposedly is what happened when, when, uh, she killed, uh, 
uh, John Bell was all from supposedly done beyond the grave. So I do, do believe it can happen, but I don't think typically ghosts in general are all nice. I think some of them are evil. So uh, I, I don't I don't doubt that that can happen. I don't know that that's what happened there, but I don't doubt that that could happen. Mm, yeah, the bill which she uh, she poisoned him, didn't she? Yep. <coughs> Allegedly. Well. I'm not sure whether to believe this. Like you say, it's a, it, there's a lot of coincidences here, and a lot of a few people have done a little bit of digging on this to try and see if it was actually a real story. Now it's meant to have taken place in 1938, um, but apparently, looking at the records and that, there's no mention of a guy dying by the name Calpur in 1938. But the closest they could find was in 1910. There was a guy called Enos C. Pruitt, spelled different. Uh, the original guy's name apparently was spelled. P-R-U-I-T-T. This guy's name was spelled P-R-E-W-I-T-T. So it's a different spelling, but, you know, Enos, is it C. Pruitt? So he could have gone by Cal Pruitt, okay? And this guy was 44 when he died, and he died by a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head. So, you know, it sort of resembles the story in a little way. Um. And the only other death fact sort of can be associated with this in that time frame was a guy by the name of Whitley, uh, who died on July 6, 1914, so for four years after this guy died. And he was he was the farmer that crashed his buggy uh, and, and died. So historically, it it doesn't tie up to you know the dates given in this particular account, but we do have people with very similar names dying. You know, obviously a few years earlier, but again, that's how urban legends spread in it. So there could have been some truth to this story, um, you know, in some shape or form. So, you know, it's funny because that's a story that's, um, I've been to Pulaski County. It's actually not that far from my house. It's literally an hour and 15, 20 minutes from where I live. I've never heard that story before. And you're 4,000 miles away and you knew the story. So that's what's cool about all these stories as, as far as, you know, how you find out about them and who doesn't know about them. So that's that's kind of an amazing deal when you think about it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, just on that point, really, I mean, I heard, this is going to sound crazy, but a few, you know, a few years back, maybe maybe five, six, seven years, something like that, a guy told me that he'd seen this creature. Now, we've got a little woods in the back of Groomsby. It's called Willsby Woods. And this guy reckons that when he was a kid – Maybe he was like, um, you know, 13 year old, something like that. And he was having a crafty, crafty cigarette, um, at the back of the woods with his mates. And they said they were stood there and they was all being quiet because they didn't want anybody to know they was there. Okay. So this is during school time. This is like dinner time. And just come out of school to have a crafty fag. Anyway, they're all there being quiet, smoking this cigarette. When they hear this stomping coming towards them. And obviously, when you're a kid and you're smoking a cigarette, you think it's a teacher. So they all hunker down and they're listening for these footsteps and they, they get closer and closer and closer. As to eventually, they see that it was a cornfield at the back of the woods there. And they see the corn starting to part. So someone's coming through the corn. So they all, you know, they're all fixed on this corn. The, the footsteps are getting closer and closer. And he says that what came out of that corn was a four and a half to five foot tall figure. Okay, at the... The lower half was um, like that of a a deer or a goat. It had the you know the, the animal legs with the hooves. The torso was human, the arms were human, and the head was that of a well. He described it looking like a rabbit, 
um, slash goat, uh, slash deer. It was that sort of shaped face, okay? It had glowing eyes, and it had horns, big, big, huge horns. Came out of the cornfield, saw them, they saw it, and it just turned around and bolted back into the corn. And they heard it go quite a ways before they couldn't hear it anymore. Now, he told me this story, and I thought it was full of shit. I'm going to be honest. I thought, mm, don't sound very convincing. <clears throat> anyway, a f- you know, a couple of years after that, you know, so we, this had gone out of my memory and all the rest of it. And he was sat in a cafe with, a, with another friend and he was talking to this friend about this particular incident. When this woman turned around from another seat in the cafe, she heard them talking about it and she said, did you see that near Willsby Woods? And he said, yeah, that was in Willsby Woods when we saw it. And she said, I saw exactly the same figure uh, when I was like, you know, a little girl in the same place, she saw it maybe, maybe five or six years before he saw it. Again, you know, we've got two stories now from two independent witnesses, if you like, talking about the same creature in the same vicinity. Okay, so then we, I, you know, I start talking about this to people, and uh, you know, Andy mentions that he says it's funny you mentioned that because when we was growing up at the back of our ways and these these woods at the back of where he grew up used to be in connect you know interconnected with this particular wood uh, back in the day but obviously you know the area is built up now so there's houses and roads in between but in this particular section of this wood there was a bit called uh, devil's dyke and you're probably familiar with um, you know when an area's got the word devil in it uh, there's normally good reason for that yeah. devil to be put there okay so this was called devil's dyke and now when he was growing up he just thought it was uh it was given that name to keep you away from it you know to scare kids away from it because it was a dangerous area it was you know it was a dyke but it turns out from talking to his cousin at the time that someone had actually seen a creature that resembles this creature that i've described earlier actually at this place and that's how it got its name the devil's dyke so i'm telling this to a friend of mine and he says he says, you're fucking joking. I says, no, honestly, this is, you know, three, three different people have told me about this now. Um, and he says, he says, one of my friends told me about this. And he thought, again, he thought he was making it up. He thought it was full of shit. But what he said, he happened is he was walking his dog around the back of Woolsey Woods. And these two people approached him running, panics, you know, ash and white, running towards him saying, run, run, run. And obviously, this is England, you know, we've got no dangerous wild animals or anything like that. So he didn't know what was going on. So he's just there with his dog. These people run towards him, you know, uh, let's say a husband and wife, male and female, run towards him. And they said, run, 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 we've just seen the devil. Um, and obviously, you run with them uh, back, to, you know, back towards the car park. And he, he said, what, what, you know, he's saying, obviously, eventually to slow down. And he said, what did you see? And they described exactly the same figure. Uh, but they didn't mention the glowing eyes. But apart from that, they described the same figure in slight, this is uh, probably, I don't know, uh, maybe a thousand yards away from the original site, if you like, but the opposite side of the woods. But, you know, I've seen the same woods. Um, anyway, that guy was talking, and it turns out that a friend of his also saw a creature, but this was at night time, and he was just finishing off some gardening work for one of his customers, and he, he just leant against the fence. This is at the, the woods that used to adjoin to this particular woods back in the day. Like I said, I don't anymore. But he was less just resting against his fence post, uh, you know, having a cigarette, you know, finished his day, and he heard this thing approaching him in this dike, you know, this devil's dike, what's there. He heard it approaching him, and it came up, and it, he said he could just make out as a shadowy figure, but he could see the red glowing eyes looking back at him. 
Um, you know, so you take one story, but to get four or five people saying a similar thing in the same area, independent of each other, you know, that's the reason that I enjoy the paranormal. Well, I mean, and I, and I see that. I guess what I got out of the conversation is you said you guys don't have any wild animals over in England, and I think you're uh, not including the dog man, which is made oh, clear yeah. by Andy, roams all the uh, forest over there. That's everywhere. He sees it in supermarkets. He just got a big beard, Andy. He's not a dog man. <laughs> yeah. Kill him! But yeah, uh, <laughs> but no, um, yeah, I know, obviously, you know, yeah, now, um, knowing this dog man is, is, allegedly roaming around the British Isles. Um, I was speaking to someone just the other week and, uh, you know, she, she collates, you know, cryptid uh, encounters. She actually collates them all into like a, a map, if you like. And do you know how many Bigfoot sightings she's recorded in the UK? Just no. have a guess. Three. Yeah, that's what I thought. I thought she'd have 10 or 15, something like that, maybe. She's actually got over 400 reports of a Bigfoot oh, wow. white creature seen in the UK. Um, obviously I'm not saying that they're all true, but you know, when she told me that number that, you know, blew my mind. Um, anyway, that's cryptozoology. How did we get onto that? Well, we start talking about dog men again, as it usually turns out on your show. Um, yeah. did you say you had another story besides the uh, Kentucky one? Yeah, I could give you another one. Uh, this one didn't, didn't make it onto our show. So it's uh, an exclusive for you. Uh, I'll get to save you all the best bits and just let me find it. This is the story of the Undertaker's Bride. Are you familiar with this one? No. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's probably not for not for kids. This one. So if uh, there's any kids listening, turn up. So. Um, this happens in the fall of 1911 in London. Okay. And it centers around this fella called Edmund Smith, who was an undertaker, the local undertaker. Now, we all know, generally, undertakers are, are weirdos. And this Smith was no uh, no exception to the rule. He goes into the local pub, has a few drinks, uh, gets pretty hammered, and starts boasting while he's still drinking in the pub to the, you know, to his friends and people around that he was enjoying cardinal relations with the young women whose bodies he was taking care of at the mortuary. Uh. Yep. So, um, he actually put it like this. He said, this, this particular day, he said, I have sampled a beauty who drowned on the eve of her wedding. Okay. And she was actually to be buried in a, in a bridal dress. So, yeah, not the most wholesome of characters, is he? But a few weeks later, he's in the pub again, and he comes in and he's, you know, the look of terror on his face. And the, the friends ask him and say, what, what's wrong with you, you know? And this guy's used to seeing dead bodies and that, so, he, you know, he doesn't normally get shot. But he says, this particular woman appeared to him in his home. She appeared to him decked out in a rotting wedding dress, and she begged him to come with her. She actually said to him, don't you want to be with us? Don't you want to be with me together forever, my sweet? You know, because he's been, you know, doing the old in out of her. Now she's fell in love with him. So the friends 
didn't know what to make of this, and he had a few drinks, and he he, he left the, the the pub. He didn't come back for a few days, and he was in there quite regular. So people got a bit worried, and went round to his house. And eventually, the police and some friends broke into the house to find a very grisly sight. They found the undertaker, this Smith, sprawled on the bed. His neck was broken, and an expression of raw horror was frozen upon his face. On the bedside next to him was the bridal veil. Dun, dun, dun. Uh, what do you make of that? I mean, I guess my question of what do most of these um, uh, dead bodies look like? I mean, are they at least attractive? Well, yeah, I mean, she drowned, so there wouldn't <laughs> be much, much wrong with her. <laughs> well, I mean, but some of those, depending on how long they were in water, could be like, you know, bloated and unrecognizable. So I, I, maybe I'm digging too deep into this. Yeah, maybe. I think... Um, <laughs> It, it must go on, though, wasn't it? <laughs> oh, oh it, it definitely goes on. I mean, there were stories uh, back when Marilyn Monroe um, was taken to the uh, uh, coroner's office. There were stories that that somebody who worked there, you know, tried to do some stuff to her. Um, I mean, so I mean, it, it's it's a sad world we live in. So none of that actually surprises me. Mm. Lee, tell- so could- I'm sorry. Tell- I was going to say just so we just so we can tell his friends that he. Yeah, you know, he slept with Marilyn Monroe. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it doesn't matter that it was after she was dead. You know, yeah. still, oh, he leaves that bit out. Yeah, that part yeah. doesn't get mentioned. Yeah. <laughs> so, tell me a little bit about how these guys can uh, listen to your show. I mean, they they know how to listen to podcasts, so that really goes without saying. I hate when people say that. You know, it's on iTunes and all the other platforms. But tell them how uh, they can interact with you more. I know you got some groups and stuff out there. Uh, yeah, we have. Um a Facebook group called the Don't Break the Oath Podcast Paranormal Hangout. Um, and really that's, it is for the show, but it's it's not it's not just solely about the show. You know, it's not people just on there saying, oh, this is a wonderful podcast. It's, uh, in fact, it's nobody on there saying that. <laughs> but um, it, <laughs> but it, it is a place where people can share the paranormal uh stories and feelings and all the rest of it and then if we do do a show where people want to you know mention something about the show something we missed off or something we said or whatever that that goes on there as well so really there's that and then um obviously if people want to send us the stories they just send them to dbto podcast at at gmail.com and then if they want to look at the website that is just don't break the oath podcast uh, all one word or phrase if you will dot com and you've got uh um a new shop up too right yeah, yeah, we've uh, moved shops now. We were on uh, the same shop as what you guys use. Seems to be pretty sweet. Um, looking at it, so yeah, if if people want to get something in time for Christmas, uh, they probably missed the boat. To be honest, I think it's getting a bit close now. But if they uh, if they want to get on there and get a a latte mug with "Don't Break the Oath" on it, why would you? I don't know. But if you do, <laughs> the shop is there for you. Yeah, we had, I know you got to. <laughs> we had somebody buy. We had somebody buy a shower curtain, so I can't say that. Yeah, I heard that on the show. Yeah, and then somebody yeah. else already asked me about. It. He's trying to convince his wife to let them buy one. So now it's become kind of a thing. So it's kind of funny. Yeah, the shower curtain in every state. Yeah, that would be awesome. Um, <laughs> well, brother, we appreciate. You should, have, you, should have, you should have a map on your website. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. These are all the states that we still need somebody to. Wisconsin, I need you to curtain. buy a shower curtain. Um, 
Thank you so much for coming on. Wish Andy could have been a part of it, but uh, hey, I understand how it is to be sick. Um, but the reality mm-hmm. of it is, it was still fun, and uh, I think the the um, tone of the show of your show still came through exactly because I, I felt like I was listening to "Don't Break the Oath" while you were telling your stories and giving your little um, uh, summarizing statements of of your thoughts of the story. So it, it, if if you're listening and haven't listened to to "Don't Break the Oath." that's kind of what you get, except you get two of them going back and forth. And that part actually even adds to it. So, um, but I thought it really came across well, as far as showing people what your show was like, if they hadn't heard it. And I appreciate you coming on. Yeah. Anytime, mate. And I'm glad yeah. that you got new sound equipment. Cause now I'll start listening to the show again. I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you're the one that <laughs> drops off. <are> you? <laughs> All right, brother. Well, I greatly appreciate it. Tell Andy I said hi, and uh, looking forward to great things from you guys. Yeah, and I'm sure we'll speak before Christmas, but I just want to wish you and Tracy a very Merry Christmas. And the same to you guys, Lee. Cheers, matey. All right, thank you. I really do love their show. I mean, they like I said, they, they had sound quality problems, and I know that's a, a pain for most people. It was the same way with me. I, I struggled to listen sometimes to it, and but now that it, it is 10 times better now, and I, yeah, I'm so glad. Yeah, it sounds really great. And, you know, I talked to Lee um, a, here a little bit shortly ago. And, and he a was a little t- bit shortly ago. Yeah, that's the word, right? But that totally did not make sense. Okay. I talked to him a long time ago. And uh, <laughs> now I talked, to, I talked to him earlier today. And he was telling me that their listens have almost doubled what they were three weeks ago. Good for so, you guys. That's great. Yeah, it, it's coming completely back up. And it's all got to do with the sound quality. He yeah. knows it. So. Well, good. You guys deserve it. Sound quality and dog man. That's all they talk about on that show. Is that right? Yeah, everything everything turns out to be a dog man. <laughs> it could be a UFO, it's dog man flying it. I mean it's just <laughs> Hey, that's what you believe in, <laughs> that's, right? That's right. But we're gonna we're gonna do some more stuff on Dog Man. I've got some guys from the uh, North American Dog Man project that's uh, not too far from us. I think they're up in the Cincinnati area, so it's only a couple hours away. And uh, I'm going to try to get them on the show. We talked to them at Scarefest, and it's a long time coming. But they've got some cool stories. So mm-hmm. the whole, you know, if you get into the Bigfoot and, and uh, werewolves and all that stuff, they've got a the cool story that happened in Kentucky where they've actually got a documentary out where supposedly this guy saw this werewolf-type creature just tear a couple of people apart. Oh, my God. But there's still no record of it. So it's one of those funny, he saw it, he knows what he saw, but there's no yeah. record of it. So is there a cover-up? I, I don't know. Oh, I hope but, that didn't happen. That's really not good. We'll get them on after the first of the year and, and have them tell you the story. Because when he told it to me, I was like, I, I couldn't. It sounded almost too unbelievable. But, mm-hmm. you know, so many conspiracies and cover-ups are. So what are you yeah. going to say? Well, guys, we're going to wrap this night up. We uh, hope you enjoyed uh, everything that we had for you tonight. I, I think you're going to enjoy what we got for you next week, like I said earlier. So a um, little bit of, little bit of uh, true crime facts. A little bit of um, Andrea Whitney and telling her story. And I'm, and I'm telling you, I know I'm, I keep teasing this, but her story, I'm just going to give you a tidbit of what it is. She actually had a friend uh, that supposedly committed suicide. There was a lot of uh, questions about whether that was actually happened or not. There was questions about whether the uh, um, police investigation was done properly. It's a small town, so a lot of things could happen. And she's decided to look into it on her own. And there's a bunch of paranormal things that have happened. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, that kind of point her in different directions. That's awesome. And and the story that she told me 
it was the, one of the most awesome stories I've ever heard. Oh, wow. So, uh, you know, I think back to uh, if you've seen the movie with Kevin Bacon. Uh, what was that movie? You remember? Was it a movie or a TV show? No, it was uh, it was the movie where um, the little girl was killed in in the neighborhood and he got hypnotized and he could start seeing things and she was coming to him to try to help him oh, I don't solve know the is. murder. Um, that, that's but that, very cool, though. That was an awesome movie. And uh, this when she started telling me some of the things happening, that's what it reminded me of was that movie. So, But, yeah, that was actually uh, Stir of Echoes is what that's oh, called. Oh, that's right. Yeah, Stir, Stir of, of Echoes. Echoes. But the things she was telling me was similar to type things that you would see in a movie like that to where somebody's reaching out from beyond the grave to try to help find out what really happened and and the 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 incidents that she'll tell you about are, are just amazing so i can't wait to uh to do that so hey how about that for a fun christmas nice yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we got serial killer fun serial killer facts and uh people reaching out from beyond the grave to solve that and we're gonna have some some scary christmas stories some some uh, paranormal stuff that's happened at christmas time all right, sounds and great. One of them I can already tell you involves a boy and his seven-year-old dead friend. Oh, but it's a very cool story. So it's okay. it's kind of scary. Mm-hmm. You might you might start crying on that one too. Oh well, not. Oh. <laughs> All right, guys, we love you, and we'll see you soon. Love you guys. Have a good week. <laughs>